when we continue to put shame and fear and blame onto ourselves, our brains go into tunnel vision, emergency mode, and we can only focus on whatever it is that we're being blamed for or what we're scared about. And it's impossible from there to think bigger. So we have to start to recognize that the times we're living through is actually a beautiful opportunity for change. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that it's going to be a straight way forward. It just means that we have to continue to show up in that energy so that we can continue to pivot and embark on this pretty adventurous journey that we're up against. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear interviews with folks who are changing our shared future with innovation, with new insights, with fresh ideas that can change all of our lives. Today, we are going to take apart a topic that is very counterintuitive. I'm going to just add two words for you. Climate optimism. Well, we don't see those two words very often together, but today's guest, Anne-Therese Gennari, well, she will mercifully give us a fresh perspective on how we can carry our concerns about climate change and still live with a lovely peace of mind. In her new book, The Climate Optimist Handbook, she moves our mental chatter from the gloom of anxiety and guilt to the thrill of possibility and an enthusiasm for what's happening right now and what's about to happen for the future. And there is so much possibility happening in the realm of climate change mitigation. Here's one of my favorite quotes from Anne Therese. She says, everything changed for me when I realized my life's mission isn't about minimizing my negative footprint, but maximizing my positive one. Ah, now there's just a, just a different take on the same theme. And that is a generative way of looking at how we interact with this issue of climate change. And here's an interesting twist. Anne Therese's fresh perspectives come from life experience that includes a long time spent in the depth of climate change activism anger and despair. And then her journey changed. And that's another great part of this whole interview today. In fact, the story of Anne's transformation and her new perspective is so compelling that she has delivered commencement speeches at esteemed institutions. She's been a guest lecturer at renowned universities like Columbia, and she's graced various platforms like the Weather Channel, BBC Radio One. I could go on and on. We are so fortunate to have Anne-Therese Gennari with us today. Welcome, Anne-Therese. Thank you so much. I am beyond thrilled to be here. I'm going to start with a very important question I took right out of your book. <laughs> Ready? I'm almost nervous, but yes, go for it. Do I have to raise chickens? No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Although I would love to have chickens, but I also have friends who have chickens, and they're a ton of work, and they sh everywhere, and they escape, and then you have to chase them down. So, no, you don't have to raise chickens. <laughs> well, you know, that question came up. I, I'm going to, um, I have your book over here on my very important stack of books. And I'll tell you, the chapters are laid out so that I was curious about almost every first sentence in, in every chapter. So we have quite an interview to get through today. But that was the title of a, of a chapter in the book. And the reason why I asked that is because I live in Vermont. I know you're in the city right now. But oh boy, people are raising chickens everywhere. <laughs> You know what? The prices went up and people realized, maybe I should just have my own chickens, um, yeah. which is fabulous and so funny. Um, and I think it's it's great. I mean, listen, 
if I could go out and go pick my own eggs, how amazing would that be? And maybe one day I will raise my own chickens. But I think I wrote that chapter for people who might be wondering, do I have to give up city life and all the modern amenities that I've gotten so used to, to sort of change the world and save the world? And, you know, the point with that chapter is to say, you don't. In fact, people need to stay in cities and we need to start to transform. Sorry, we need to start to transform the cities and not move the people, basically. Yes. Now, okay. So this is the great thing about your book. You are doing something of a flip for us. You're not diminishing the problem of climate change, but you're diminishing the burden of it and the the shame about it in us so we can carry it forward more gracefully, more successfully, I'd say. There's this great sentence. Here's a quote. There's a chapter called Leaving a Big Footprint, Mm. which I was scared about at first. But here's your first sentence. You say, everything changed for me when I realized my life's mission isn't about minimizing my negative footprint, but maximizing my positive one. Mm. Now, that is such a key insight in how to flip this in our minds so that we can participate in a better world and not run around feeling like we're carrying an anchor. Talk to us about this change. Well, it was the change that completely changed my life and how I see both myself and the world around me and the people around me. I mean, I used to think people were idiots yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and it was all of our fault that we were doing this and it was so awful. And what are we doing to our planet and all the animals? And then they shifted for me that, yes, of course, there are ways that we need to minimize our footprint in terms of how much we extract and how much we you know, just leave a trail of disaster behind us, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. That's definitely still true. But I think for me, the shift happened when I recognized that I'm not a villain just by being alive today. You know, my presence matters. And when I can start to live from that truth, I can bring beauty into the world. I can bring intention into the world. And I can start to actually make a difference because you can try all you want, but trying to empower yourself to take action from continuously telling yourself that you're awful and need to make yourself as small as you can possibly be. It doesn't matter who you are. It's not a very empowering statement for anyone. And so I think that we need to start right there. We have to recognize that we belong here on earth. We're supposed to be here and we can continue to exist in symbiosis with nature, in a relationship with nature and, and with each other. And I think the second we start to recognize that everything we do has an impact and it can either be a negative or a positive one. Now, sometimes you just want to be nothing, (laughs) you know, you're just tired and that's fine too. But I think showing up with a bit of intentionality in in everything that we do is going to come back to reward you and also just enable you to make such a bigger difference in the world. Okay. So right here would be great for you to share some of the key parts of your story. Because you have a really dramatic swing that you've experienced, like so many of us have from from our youth to what we where we end up settling. But I and I don't mean settling in a in a negative way. I mean we do get more graceful. We do find a path that we can live with without constantly being in the fight or fight mode. But you have quite a story of getting there. So share your story with us. Yeah, and I I'll try to keep it brief, but Basically, when I was in my early 20s, I dealt with a lot of climate anxiety unknowingly because I learned about climate change in my early teens when, you know, we watched The Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore in school and I was terrified by this thing called climate change. And then I was even more terrified by the fact that 
world leaders did not seem to take it seriously and no one was springing to action like I thought they would. And so by trying to not pay attention to this thing called climate change and hoping that someone with more power than me was doing something about it, what happened was that I was just storing a lot of anxiety inside me. And so once I reached my early 20s, I was trying to somewhere figure out my path in that. And my path very much looked like, you know, turning the blame to myself and to the people around me. So I was an angry vegan when I first turned vegan. I thought I had to lecture everyone. And as soon as someone showed a little bit of interest in what I was doing, it was like lecture and then shaming. And then don't you know? And so I'll just say, say to anyone who might be traveling down that path that it's a great way to ruin parties and lose yeah. friends. So if that's what you're up to, fine. But really... Not just that. I mean, I say that with kind of a light heart because, of course, I didn't just lose friends. But it was hard. Like, it was hard navigating the social settings um, and trying to just be normal, so to speak, mm-hmm. as a young person in this world, but also having this deep anxiety about where we were headed. And I took that out of myself. And so there were times in my early days as an activist, so to speak, where I would starve myself because I thought just purely by feeling some sort of pain, I was connecting myself on a spiritual level with the hurting animals around the world and, you know, in some stupid way thinking I was helping them, which obviously I wasn't. And so going through those loops, I had truly a spiritual awakening one night after a dinner conversation with my brother, where I again had lost an argument about the environment and felt so defeated. And what really happened was I fell to the floor and lost control of my body. And I just cried. It was like, some higher force or my higher self just said, we got to release this energy because it's not serving you and it's making you sick technically. And so I just cried for a good 10, 15 minutes. And afterwards, when I regained control of my body, I closed my eyes. I felt incredibly light and a message came through that said, you're here to be a climate optimist. And I'd never heard those words before. I had no idea what that meant, but something about that spoke such truth to me and it resonated. It resonated so deeply. And I understood then that I had to change my ways. And I had to start by just reflecting on how was I treating myself in this world? Mm. And if I'm trying to heal the world, shouldn't I start by healing myself and taking care of myself? And then also recognizing that if you want to create change and inspire change in people around you, you have to inspire them. You can't force them into that change. And so there was a lot of those shifts going on early on. And then that took me on a journey of figuring out what that actually looks like. Well, and you've done a darn good job. I I got this book in the mail about five days ago, and I spent almost every morning with it since. And I just felt better and better and better. You just have a natural way of turning things on their side so we can look at them with fresh eyes. Here's a, here's a quote that I really loved. At one point in the book, you say, the everyday stories we're telling ourselves are so huge. So talk to us about this shift from a responsibility mindset to an opportunity mindset. I never thought of climate change in those terms. We we all know we feel like almost irresponsible if we don't recycle to the full max and all the other things that we drive, the smallest car we can possibly drive and all those things. But I never think of climate change as an opportunity mindset. Talk to us about that. That we are human beings with feelings. In fact, something somewhere between 90 to 95% of our decision-making is heavily influenced by our feelings. And so we are, you know, just little girls and and boys in there who are just trying to survive in this world. And anyone who tells himself daily that it's our responsibility to to fix this is going to get very overwhelmed and tired because there is just not one 
problem to fix. There are so many. And once you start down one rabbit hole, you realize it's almost impossible. And so you just want to give up. It's just really, really hard. And so for me, again, when the shift happened to me, it was like, we're in a mess right now. And that is just what it is. The world isn't functional. Okay. So maybe let's just start by accepting that and then looking at it from a different lens and saying, well, since we know this, we have the facts that provides us an opportunity to look at what isn't working and think again, which means we now have an opportunity to create something different. And maybe that different is even better than what we're used to. We tend to think that the world we know today is the best there will ever be. And so like we have to sacrifice all these amazing things to go backwards in time and then maybe somehow save the world in the process. And that is not true. We have to continue to innovate and reimagine and think something even bigger. And we can only go to that big, bold, visionary thinking if we allow ourselves and our brains to expand to that capacity. And here's something interesting by the psychology about all of this, because when we continue to put shame and fear and blame onto ourselves, our brains go into tunnel vision, like emergency mode, and we can only focus on whatever it is that we're being blamed for or what we're scared about. And it's impossible from there to think bigger. So we have to start to recognize that the times we're living through is actually a beautiful opportunity for change. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that it's going to be a straight way forward. It just means that we have to continue to show up in that energy so that we can continue to pivot and embark on this pretty adventurous journey that we're up against. So yeah, I mean, if you ask me, I think it's a very exciting time to be alive. It's also freaking terrifying because people are not good with change and there's a lot of change coming up. But in order to get through that change, we need a new mindset. Well, I tell you, you've got some really good thoughts on on change too. So I'm going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk with this wonderful thought leader who is helping us all become climate change optimists. You know how the constant negative noise in our digital lives feels like it's reaching a boiling point? Now, many of us have tuned out the news and social media almost entirely. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. There are newsworthy stories about amazing progress, innovation, leaps in human potential, and wonders in the natural world, and they're just not reaching the top of our feeds. We can have access to this, but none of us has the time or maybe even the emotional stamina to search through all the doom and gloom news to find what's right with the world. Okay, enter the goodness exchange. There, we are giving instant access to positive news for curious people. Did you hear about the recent Harvard study that found that exposure to just four minutes of good news can make you 32% less anxious and 18% more optimistic? Well, I don't know about you, but I need those kind of numbers in my life. So if you want to live with more joy and way less fear, it's really simple. First, you join us at the Goodness Exchange. Everyone around the world has the opportunity to access this kind of content. And we've promised no politics for about a decade, so you're safe from all that distraction as well. Second, you allow this new, more positive, balanced worldview to put a spring in your step again. It can change the way you react to your kids, your coworkers, everybody you come in contact with. And the stories we write about can make you the idea person in your circles. These challenging times call for us to wake up and take control of our perspective. The people who use the Goodness Exchange have the ability to react to the harshness of the world much different because they know way more about what's right with the world. And that's a resource. 
So subscribe to the Goodness Exchange, our YouTube channel and the podcast, and use this content to live a more expansive worldview. It is still an amazing world out there and you can be a part of it. Welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness. Okay, we're back with Anne-Therese Gennari. So Anne-Therese, you told this great story about your grandparents and Christmas. And it relates to this thing called generational amnesia, which I found fascinating and so true. So talk to us about generational amnesia through the story of your grandparents' Christmas. Yeah, so the story about my grandparents, I learned from doing a study for my like middle school assignment or something like that. And they would joy shared about their lives when they were kids and how, you know, once a year for Christmas, they would kill one of the pigs on the farm and eat that. And, you know, it was just a special treat. And here I am, you know, going to the grocery store and having ham for my breakfast sandwich every day. It was such a different, just different world that I, I had ever been used to. And then, you know, my grandpa said, and then we made this big bath outside and all those kids got to go in it. And you just pray that you were the first one in because the water got dirty. <laughs> so, what you know, big bathtub outside. Right, exactly. So, you know, when I heard them speak and I saw them in front of me, I'm like, you're just two generations away from me. And how much has changed in this short time? It was quite fascinating to me. I mean, back in that day, they would have to take the horse carriage to the next town once a week to, to buy food. Otherwise, they didn't really see people. It was just them on the farm. And here we are driving to the grocery store. And and the world has just really propelled in the in just a few generations. And I think that's fascinating and it really speaks to how fast we can change which we also shouldn't forget right like now when we're looking forward but generational amnesia talks about how fast we forget how things used to be both for better and for worse right and it gets dangerous when we don't remember that we actually have lost a lot of things that are necessary to us how biodiversity has gone down a scary amount in just a few decades and i can't remember how when my grandparents were younger, maybe the sound of, of bees buzzing or fish in the streams and birds above their heads were just different. And I can't remember because they haven't passed it on, you know? Right. And so from one generation to the next, we just forget what the world was like. And if we don't know what we're missing, it's really hard to fight for it. So mm-hmm. it gets dangerous when we don't understand what we're losing. It's a tricky thing, but worth paying attention to because we are losing our world very fast and it's dangerous when we can't remember that. But it also, like I said, point to the beautiful part of it where if we can get used to something new, we can also get used to something better and something different. And we have the capacity to move on very fast. And we have to remember that when we initiate the big challenges coming up and, and start working on that change that we need. Yeah. So when we think about that, something new could be better. Then we get into this notion of being wrong. We also have to accept that we were wrong because we probably fought for the old way for quite some time. And so talk to us about your insights. You say, sometimes I wonder how much pain and suffering exists in the world simply because we don't know how to be wrong. Oh, I mean, that goes for individual things and challenges, right? As well as for the bigger picture stuff in our world. We just tend to hold on so tightly to everything that we worked hard for. 
And this again goes back to psychology and how our brains work. The more we invest into something, if that's time or money or energy, the harder we hold on to it. If you have a really good degree and you spent years studying and then more years practicing what you just learned, it is hard to change and it's hard to even question what you know. And so I think that is a, another big danger that we're facing today. It's our own stubbornness. And I think it also is worth recognizing and pointing to that as humans, as a species, when we're faced with uncertainty, which climate change really provides us is uncertainty. Yeah. We don't know anything. Like the weather is weird. We were just talking about how hot it is in October. And so like things are changing. Everything's changing. And that provides a lot of uncertainty. What is going to happen to our jobs and our economy and slam some AI on top of that? And people are right. freaking out, right? And in these times of uncertainty, we tend to actually hold on tighter to everything that we know to be true. And so that again comes back to what is actually the challenge that we're facing. It is for us to start finding some courage to maybe accept that when it comes to a lot of things, we have been wrong, or at least it isn't working anymore. And so we have to move on from that. And then we have to find the courage to question and think again, to find something new and something better. But yeah, I, I have a, an exercise that I mentioned in the book called Retruthing, which just helps you practice what okay. is going to be wrong? Sorry, am I getting ahead of myself? No, that was the next question I was asking. Was going to ask you about retruthing. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so retruthing is. I'm a Swede, by the way, for anyone who hasn't picked that up yet. But I'm born and raised in Sweden, and English is not my native language. So, as I've gotten a little better over the years, I've also many times just kind of plopped in some words that aren't quite supposed to be words. And one word that I made up was retruthing. But I stuck with it because I couldn't find a better word to use for what I'm trying to say. And so re-truthing just means changing the truths that you live by. And I call them truths, and they're all individual and personal to us. And they have been coded by whatever we have gone through up until this moment. And again, back to the, the brain and how we're operating, about 95% of our time, we're acting from our subconscious mind, meaning we're not even paying attention to what we do, or why we're doing these things. And so for me, that practice of retruthing is just becoming more aware of the things you do, the things you say, the way you react when people say certain things, the way you react when your partner is annoying or whatever. And then just like catch yourself and say, why am I acting this way? Where might this be coming from? And do a little bit, bit of investigating into yourself and your own life. And yes, it's uncomfortable because you're like pulling the blinds on yourself. But that is when you also empower yourself. Because you allow yourself to recognize that I'm not the person doing these things. I am me and I'm doing certain things and many times out of habit. And because of that, I can change the things I do and then continue to become someone new and someone who does different things. And so you release yourself to that identity, so to speak, like, oh, I am someone who always have to eat meat or I can't dance. I can't sing. I am not. I'm not brave. I'm, I'm shy. And like, well, are you or have you just always lived that way? And so retruthing is about looking at what do you do, why are you doing these things, these things, and then just kind of ask yourself, how could my life be different if I retruthed myself a little bit? So I always give the example about change because I used to hate change when I was little. I was, my mama said this, I was really hard <laughs> to have around because I wanted things to always be the same, no matter what. And so for me, I had to retruth the whole notion of change. And so instead of change being uncertain and scary and could potentially lead to awful things, change can be exciting and it can maybe lead to new things I've never even thought about. And maybe if I dare to try something different, I might find myself in an even better life than what I've known so far. And so, you know, you can find something that you can understand that this is my truth and I've been living by this truth 
And now I'm trying to retruth it into something different. And how is that going to open up a whole new door to a new kind of life in a new kind of world? Well, you've got a really good story, perfect example of that about what was it your husband said about eating meat when you first met? You know, like some of our truths are really hard, limited beliefs are just slamming the door to possible lives we might live that are great, that are rich and beautiful. But we're just so committed to those original truths, those limiting beliefs that we won't even let the door crack open. Do you remember the story you told in the book about how your husband said that he what was it he said about eating meat? Yeah, we were, it was one of our very first dinner dates. And I think I was in my early days of veganism and he ordered a steak or something. And he's, he just looked at me. He said, you know, I have to eat meat because I'm a man. <laughs> it was something so <laughs> stupid. And I understood that he wasn't yeah. actually meaning that, but you know, the meaning of the story is that luckily, obviously he's still a man, even if he doesn't eat meat and he has changed a lot in the course of our relationship. And he actually really loves the plant-based foods that I cooked for him. So yeah, people can change, even stubborn <laughs> boyfriends. You know, there was a story back to this, this being wrong thing. When I was growing up, I remember my parents, they, they really thought the Vietnam War was just a horrifying thing, the way young people acted and didn't sign up for the draft and draft dodging and all that. They were totally, totally sort of I don't know if you could possibly be this, but they were for the Vietnam War. I don't understand. I was I was way too young to even give a care. But what I do remember was that when my brother became an F-15 fighter pilot in the first Gulf War, all of a sudden they looked at war entirely differently. Mm. All of a sudden they saw what happened during the Vietnam War and they saw the protesters and and all the people pointing at the fact that this war was impossible to justify. All of a sudden, they looked at those folks as the truthsayers once they had their own son in harm's way in a war that was hard to explain. So talk to me about how we look at our role in climate change mitigation. We almost look at like it's going to be such a loss. We're going to have to give up so much. But you kind of turn that on its head, too, and talk about possibility so much and the rich possibilities that we can't even imagine. Talk to me about these shifts that we go through. Yes, and I will actually begin by just piggybacking off of what you just said, because something you sharing your story about your parents just remind me of another thing in the book, which is that it is really hard to understand the seriousness of climate change, understand why we need to take action until we are directly impacted in one way or another. And one of the biggest mental barriers for climate action is the fact that it feels so distant, either in time or space is happening to other people, other parts of the world. It's going to happen in the future. Even if that future is five years from now, it's not right now. And it's hard to act on that distance. And then once it becomes personal in a way that it's not chosen by us, it's almost like it's too late to act. Because once you're in that crisis mode, it is really hard to think anything but to just live through the day and survive and, and right. take care of yourself and your family. And so I think recognizing that maybe taking climate action is some sort of privilege in a way because it means that you still have that space to change. I'm not saying that not everyone can, but it's harder once you're more stuck in it. So I think we have to make it personal and bring it closer until it's forced upon us. And so how do we do that? How do we allow our brain to actually invite that reality in? And that goes back to your question about shifting the narrative because our brains are smart. They're just trying to keep us safe. They don't want to engage in anything that could lead to potential loss or sacrifice or pain or whatever. They're like, 
screw that. I don't know. You don't just know you don't belong in that corner. Let's figure out what's good in your life and focus on that. So that's just how our brains work. And so to bring this closer and make it more personal, because it is personal for all of us, it's going to affect us all at some yeah. point um, in one way or another. So we want to avoid getting there. And a way to make it personal is to instead, like what you said, focus on how is this scary to how could this enrich me? What are the possibilities? And I also talk about some, something so simple as shifting how we talk about these things, even how we talk about the solutions and the actions. If we keep saying, I need to eat less meat, I have to travel less, I shouldn't buy this many clothes, I need to cut down on plastic and say no to this. It's very, if you think about it, very negative framing. Yes. And again, your brain just picks on the, up on the negative and says, yes. you don't want to go there. Not, not right. potential loss. Let's not engage. If you instead say, let's try some new plant-based options. I've really seen some good recipes. And I think that picture someone posted on Instagram, that looked delicious. Let's try that tomorrow. Maybe we should just stick around locally this year because we can actually have more time and less stress and just kind of be with each other and enjoy each other's company. You know, I love that beautiful red dress in my closet. I'm going to wear it more often because I look fabulous in my dress. And so like recognizing that sometimes shifting what you say and understanding that inviting more Yes. will inevitably lead to less of a negative footprint, but you're gaining something from it yes. just by how you're shifting, how you're talking to yourself and the people around you. That is such a great point. And, you know, one of the things that I do a lot of public speaking myself and I talk to people about is something I call the four shifts where we pause and we ignore the negative noise and seek signs of goodness and progress, and then share it. So those are the four shifts. Pause, ignore the negative noise, seek signs of goodness and progress, and then share it. So I looked at your book and the things that you're recommending, and they, they fall into one of those categories at all times. You know, we can't follow our emotions over a cliff every time we see something on the news or social media that is so full of doom and gloom. That's that's the question I was going to ask you. There's a chapter that's called the doom and gloom is not helping. And I couldn't agree more, of course. Can you give us a context to really appreciate this quote? You said the biggest narrative shift we have to make is in how we allow climate change to sit in our brains and our culture. Do you have some stories about that? Some some way that we can relate to that quote and put it in practice in our own lives? Yes. I mean, it's kind of a big quote and it holds a lot, but it kind of encapsulates a lot of things that we already talked about. But more than anything, I think the doom and gloom, again, what our brain picks up is, you know, we go all alert and you know, we have to pay attention because what happens is our amygdala, which is in the center of our yes. emotional brain, kicks in like a little barking dog and goes, danger, danger, danger. And when it barks, we can't focus on anything ra like rationally. Our, no. our frontal cortex kind of shuts out and gets clouded because of the amygdala making noise. Um, and so every time we see a, a doomsday headline or something negative or a video and we just feel like filled with dread, the amygdala kicks in and says there's danger here. And then we can't think rationally or we can't think creatively or we can't see a better or bigger vision. And so I think we're reaching a point where people know climate change is real, which is wonderful because we yeah. were fighting for that for a long time, right? I shouldn't say there aren't climate deniers because they still exist, but let's again kind of ignore <laughs> that noise. But, you know, so we've reached that point. And so I think how we need to change how climate change exists in our lives, in our world, and in our culture is that just recognizing that and accepting that this is what it is. 
This is how climate change plays a part in our lives. And it's, and it's going to be that way. I think for me, I'm still, I still consider myself young and in my early thirties, I now have a daughter, you know, am I mm -hmm. terrified about her future? Of course, yes, right. of course I am, right. but I can't let myself get stuck in that fear. I'm also very excited to see what the world will look like when she's my age in 30 years. Yes. And that is another great quote that you, that you had that I think is the flip side of all the doom and gloom. In fact, I probably read that part of your book maybe two days ago and i you know, people like to frame me up because I'm the, the good news mogul. They like to frame me up as all just rose colored glasses. I do read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal every day to try and know more about what's happening in the world. And I have to tell you, you, you say a quote in here that I must have thought of about 10 times as I was making myself be aware of what the world is looking like. You say, keep some room in your heart for the unimaginable. That is a what seven sentence, a seven word sentence that we can hang on to and just pull it. It's like Blaise pa Pascal said something much like that many, many generations ago. Blaise Pascal said, keep something beautiful in your heart for moments of deep despair and darkness. And we have to have things like this to grab onto almost like a life vest at some points. But talk to me about what you see or what you think of in, in your heart when you think of the unimaginable. For, I want to credit that quote to Mary Oliver because she's just fantastic. Oh, and, absolutely. And the, yeah, and the quote changed my life. And I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for that quote. So it has a tremendous meaning in my life, truly. Before you go on, I want to turn people on to something. You and I talked about this in our pre-call. Mary Oliver is a wonderful... How would you, what would you call her? Is she a philosopher? Is she a, a poet? Anyway, there's a, there's a great podcast that I, I'd like to turn people on to right now that I think you and I both discovered we love called On Being. And I will make sure that anything like this that, that Anne Therese and I mentioned is going to be in the show notes at the Goodness Exchange website. That's where the real meat of around this interview can be found. You won't find it on Spotify or Apple iTunes or anything, but there will be a full article around this and you will find a link to this Mary Oliver and her wonderful interview on the on being podcast. So yeah, talk to us about keep some room in your heart for the unimaginable. Yeah. I can start by just saying how it changed my life because like I shared earlier, I used to not be very good with change and I thought I needed to have everything figured out and planned out. And as long as I had a plan and stuck to my plan, it would all, it was all going to be okay. And we have to recognize that every time we have a plan, we're tuning into yesterday's news, right? It's like we're learning from what we have learned and picked up in the past. And then we're figuring out a strategy from what we know from before. But if we're creating something new, there is nothing from the past to pick from. I mean, of course, we can pick together things and make something new from that. But like at some point, we got to also just leave some room in our hearts for the unimaginable. Meaning we can't imagine something we haven't yet seen. It is impossible. And so I actually have a meditation on how to like try to reach that. And sometimes you won't reach any vision at all. It's just going to be a feeling because you, your brain literally can't put that together. And I think in, in the world that we're trying to create, it might be so different 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, at the end of this decade, we may not barely recognize the world, mm -hmm. right? And just as that can be a very scary, disastrous image to try to paint, it can also be a beautiful one. This really comes to the, the pure idea that we have to create that space. Like, how do we allow for the, the stillness and the silence where something new can emerge? 
We live in a culture and in a world where we're always looking to all the different social media feeds, all the media feeds, there's so many media outlets. And then, you know, we get celebrated for sharing our opinion and sharing other person's opinions. And, you know, if, as long as we're in the, in the know of what's going on, we're smart, educated people. Like, you know, that's the right thing to do. But then we're still tuning into yesterday's news. We're stuck yeah. in what the world looks like right now. And so if we never create that space to just allow for nothingness to exist so that our brains can travel to those different distances, we're never going to figure this out. And so keeping some room in our hearts for the unimaginable, acting, activating slow time and giving yourself space to just be, it is so essential in this work that we're doing right yes. now. You know, that reminds me of something really important that part of the book where you call this, let's see where my notes are. You give us five ways to think about climate work, much like a road trip. Okay. So there's this great quote, which is just lovely right from the beginning. Maybe it's not about the dream. Maybe it's about who we become while we're having it and while we're chasing it. Alexander Den Heyer, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. Maybe it's not about the dream. Maybe it's about who we become while we're chasing it. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that so much. That's like something that my great, one of the great science philosophers, Carl Sagan, used to say something a lot like that. So talk to us about these five. The first one is that it's an unknown destination. Yeah. So that we got to get okay with that, right? Right. And it's, you know, what we just talked about keeping some room in our heart for the unimaginable. If we're too stuck on a vision that we can see right now, we're missing the target because we can't see the vision yet. We can get more and more clear on it as we embark yeah. on this journey and put one foot in front of the other. But right now we need to find the courage to venture out and embark without actually knowing exactly where we're headed to. Right. That will get clearer as we go along, right? But like, we can't wait around for that day to be like, okay, now we know, let's just do this. Mm -hmm. We got to take action now. And as we do, new visions and new ideas kind of fold along the way. And we are winning. There are plenty of wins. We just don't, they just don't get celebrated in the news like the losses do. Okay. The second one is it's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm. I really like that. I mean, you know, it's not a, not a sprint. It's also not a, a battle to be won. People tend to think that we just need to show up and fight and then we can just be all over with this. this that day is not, not going to happen ever. I hate to say it. And people who are in their youth today are probably going to look at this as their entire lifetime. This is a lifetime of embarking on a journey into a better, more beautiful world. And we need yeah. to do that together and continue to have hope and optimism in our hearts. And so if we show up for a sprint, we're going to get exhausted way too early. We cannot do that. We need to take care of ourselves. We have to take breaks. We have to create that space to just breathe and exist and, and rejoice in life because this is our life, right? If this is our entire lifetime, I can't wait until the day this is over until I can start enjoying right. the beauty of life because that's just ridiculous. So yeah, that is why we have to recognize it's a journey. It's a marathon and we're in this for the long run. Yeah. That, that is a very important point. How about then we have to stop to take breaks. What do you mm -hmm. mean by that? Well, you know, if you go on a road trip, you, if you really have to pee, then it gets very awful to be in a car and then suddenly there's no rest stop in sight and you're like what am I doing to myself and then you also want to fuel up the car because if you get stranded in the middle of nowhere you're in deeper trouble and then you also want to eat because if you get hangry you're just fueling terrible fights with your partner or whoever else is in the car so we all know that to have a successful 
joyful road trip, we take times to break and use the bathroom and eat something and have some good music on. And we need to do the same for our climate work. You have to recognize that again, it's not a sprint and the movement is only as sustainable as we are. So starting with ourselves, sustaining ourselves, it is key and so essential in all the work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That you got to find that balanced mind and heart Mm -hmm. about it. Okay. Then I love this. Don't forget this part. You say our community and friends are necessary on the journey. Again, back to the road trip. If you're in a car and you're the only one driving, it's going to take much longer to get there. And it's not going to be as fun because there's no one to talk to and share silly stories with or play silly games with. And then you can never take a break and have a nap. So if there's multiple people in the car, you know, someone can take turns driving and then you can rest and know that you're still moving forward. And I think that is why we seek community, because when we have community, we know we're not alone in this. We know that we're not the only ones trying to change the world. And I, I, in my early days, I try to always show up in my full force every single day and always be on top. And then you get exhausted because it's a lot of work, right? So some days you just want to watch Netflix or you just want to be out in nature with your family and you just want to cook a nice meal and not think about climate change. And that's totally fine. Because someone else is doing the work that day for you. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is have fun. Yeah. Because, the, you know, working with others or projecting or building some, some fresh ideas, even online with a group of people, it, you got to have fun with this. Mm-hmm. And that's something I know a lot of activists, like actual activists who go to the front line with signs and demand actual change, like those kind of activists. And they all come back to the same thing. We need joy. We need friends. We need to party. We need to sip some cocktails sometimes. Like that is also part of it. And not to be so frank, but just in the work that we're doing of rethinking, of, of asking bold questions of ourselves and, and daring to maybe be wrong sometimes. And, and, and that is scary, right? I'm saying this with lightness, but like recognizing that how we lived isn't quite aligning what, with what we want the world to look like moving forward can be quite hard to deal yeah. with. And so we need to be kind to ourselves and take it. I mean, yes, we need to speed up and accelerate climate Mm -hmm. action, but at the same time, recognizing that we can't run ourselves to the ground. We have Mm -hmm. to be kind to ourselves and we have to keep showing up. And in order to do so, you know, taking care of ourselves, finding community, having fun, enjoying this journey is incredibly important. Yeah. Okay. So. As we start to wrap up here, there's this question I always ask everybody, you know, if this interview had only been three minutes long, I'm sure there's something, I know I have my rap that when I get interviewed, I, if I only have three minutes, I I know what I need to spit out because it, it is in my heart. It's that one thing that I really wish people knew. Talk to me about what you really wish people knew. If this interview had just been three minutes. This just came to me. So I'm going to go with it. I want people listening to remember that it's okay to seek and to represent light. We live in a world where we think that to care means to always tune into the negative and to be worried and to be sad. And it's sometimes hard to be the optimistic one, the one who brings light, but we need that light so much. And the only way to make a room lighter is by showing up with light, you know? And so I think if people take something away, I want them to, Understand that at the end of the day, the one thing you always have is your own light and no one else could turn it on, turn it on but yourself. So find the, the, the will, the curiosity, maybe even the joy in activating your own true light and, yeah. and try to start, start to understand what does that look like for you and, and bring that light wherever you go. And it goes back to leaving a 
positive footprint and maximizing that one, the easiest way to do so is by showing up in light. And then the last line I always share with everyone when I finish off a talk or a workshop is, and please write this down if you have a pen and paper, but I want you to start every single day with, I have the opportunity to participate in the shift towards a better world and then live your life that way. That is it. It's opportunity, isn't it? If you are listening to this podcast, you have the luxury to have time on your hands and the technology in your hand to listen to this podcast. So it is a lovely opportunity to participate in this new world that we're going to create together. That is such a lovely way to say it. Can you repeat that one more time? I have the opportunity to participate in the shift towards a better world. Lovely. And of course, here at the Goodness Exchange, we we have thousands of articles and interviews about people exactly like Anne Therese who are doing that, who are finding what they're uniquely built to contribute and then creating a better shared future for us all. So I can't thank you enough, Anne Therese. How can people get a hold of you if they want to continue working with you or moving forward? Because I know you you do things in the world that help people process this besides public speaking. Where, where yeah. can they find you and, and what are you doing to further this? So a website, my website is a great place to start, theclimateoptimist.com. <laughs> and there's links on the website to different things I do. I'm very active on my Instagram, which is just my name, Anne-Therese Gennari, all in one. I know it's long, but you should find me. And yeah, I have a newsletter on Substack too, same name, The Climate Optimist. And I would love for people to follow and maybe if they feel inspired to get a hand get their hands on a copy of the book. Okay. The audio book is actually coming out soon too. So for those who don't read. Great. Oh, okay, good. And are you reading your own book? I am, which is intimidating, very intimidating. And the process has been longer than I anticipated. Yeah, I know. I read my own book too. And, but there's something, there's magic in hearing the author read their own book. So I will, will be waiting for that to pop out. Okay. So thank you all for joining us in this another great interview on the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. If you're listening to this podcast, it's probably because in your circles, you're one of the helpers, the doers, the givers, and the change makers. And we hope that this interview with Anne Therese gives you a spring in your step and some inspiration to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Anne Therese has connected us with where we can go next with her work. And here at the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, what we need you to do is like and subscribe to the podcast. That makes all the difference in the world to us. How this message of a different narrative about our future rises to the top is with all of us doing our small part. You can also find all our interviews at our new YouTube channel, where this interview and all the rest will be broken down into small bites. If you saw me taking notes through this interview, it's because Anne Therese said a few things that I was marking down the timestamps. So there'll be small clips from this podcast over at the Goodness Exchange YouTube channel. Okay, so thank you so much for joining us. I hope all the insight and innovation we talked about today will put a spring in your step for the week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks.